Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, folks, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. And today we have an exciting episode for you all. That's because we have all three principal collaborators in the so-called Grievance Studies Affair on the show. Now, unless you've been living under a rock this past year, you've probably heard of the affair, or the hoax, whatever you want to call it, in which Jim Lindsay, Peter Boghossian, and Helen Pluckrose wrote 20 fake academic papers and submitted them to prominent journals in the fields of study commonly known as cultural studies or identity studies, but which actually the collaborators call, quote, grievance studies, close quote, And these collaborators, Jim, Peter, and Helen, pursued this project, writing these fake academic papers, because they wanted to test what they perceived of as a lack of scientific and academic rigor in these fields of study. They contend these fields of study are monocultures that are intolerant of dissent and free inquiry, and that, as they put it, quote, bully students, administrators, and other departments into adhering to their worldview, close quote. So, Would reputable journals in these fields of study accept, for example, a feminist rewrite of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf? What about a paper that fabricated data in order to argue that men should be trained like dogs? What about an argument in support of fat bodybuilding or an ethnography with nonsensical data that entitled restaurant masculinity? It turns out the answer to their question is yes. Of the 20 papers they submitted, seven were accepted, four were published, Seven were still in play at the time that the study ended, and six papers were retired. But what does the result of this hoax or this affair prove exactly? Does it prove that indeed the so-called grievance studies are so consumed with orthodoxy and insulated from dissent that academic rigor is compromised to reach conclusions satisfying to the scholar's biases? Or, as one critic put it, was it a shallow exercise in mean-spirited mockery that didn't really prove anything? The questions are still being asked, especially with the recent announcement by Portland State University that Peter's participation in the project violated the university's ethical guidelines for human subjects research. We actually break some news on this show when Peter announces that he's taking an unpaid leave of absence from Portland State next year. But the question is, did Peter violate any research guidelines or was the finding against him a technicality used to try and dismiss the project? I put these questions and other questions to Peter and the rest of the group in this conversation, so let's jump right in. Oh, and I should also add that this episode was recorded over the internet, so if it sounds like it was, well, recorded over the internet, that's because it was. Now, let's get on to the show. And let's get started. Peter, Helen, Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Helen, I want to start with you. Mm-hmm. In your bio, you say that you are an exile from the humanities. Now, I was curious, is this a forced exile like Napoleon's or is this one purely voluntary? Um, Well, it's neither, really. I want to go back and study women's um, history in the late medieval period, but I'm just really not able to do it in a way that I could be proud of at the moment. So until we sort that problem out and I can sort of look at history rigorously without ideology or theory, I'm um, I'm not going back. <laughs> so what concerned you about the way that that area of study was operating? Was it 
did did this concern come up when you were doing your PhD work, or were you a professor or faculty member? No, I'm a low, I'm a lowly MA, but I found that undergraduate, um, I, w- I had great difficulty in criticizing postmodern ideas. I was penalized for that. At postgraduate, I, I wanted to try and have a look at some evolutionary psychology. And um, that was also very problematic. And it was made very clear to me that I wouldn't be able to pass if I said things like natural sexual selection is real or um, racism is uh, best overcome by shared goals, things like that. So it really was just very difficult to do any kind of, of balanced, rigorous work. It all had to be sort of blank slatist, uh, theoretically orthodox. And there's no, there's no pleasure in that for me. So you're over in the UK, correct? Yes. And do you have a conception of how bad things are for free speech, academic freedom, free inquiry here in the United States? And if so, how does it compare to what you're experiencing across the pond? Yeah, we've got a sort of different situations. I've been looking more specifically at the US because this is where a lot of these theories are coming from while actually living in the UK. So I think I have a good idea of the differences between them. We are having more explicit problems with freedom of speech on a governmental level because we don't have uh, the First Amendment like you do. But with the kind of um, extreme theory protests, we're we're not quite there. I think the one good thing about um, the kind of extreme student protests that are happening in the US is that it does at least allow you to get at it. They're being very explicit. They're talking about... um, the issues, whereas in the UK, it's it's much more sort of understated and you'll just quietly get failed or not employed if you say the wrong thing. Peter, you are a professor, correct? Indeed, at Portland State University. And you've been, you've been teaching for something like 25 years now, 30,000 students. Just more than that at this point, but yeah, long time. What was the response at PSU to your publishing, and and how do you all refer to it? Do you refer to this as the grievant studies affair, as Wikipedia does, for example? We do. <clears throat> Excuse me, we do. We call it grievant studies or the grievant studies affair, and the response was mostly enraged, livid, outraged. Uh, needless to say, they were not happy. And there was some bite with the bark, true too, because the school ended up investigating you and most and recently found you guilty of violating uh, the IRB, the uh, Internal Review Board. Yeah, so my colleagues published an anonymous hit piece on me in the school's vanguard, in which it's probably worth noting they spelled two of our three names wrong, and then little things like people glowering at me while I walked around campus. But the they brought me up on three charges: data fabrication, plate. Plagiarism, which I pleaded guilty to, but for plagiarizing mine comp, but they refused to charge me with that. And, and um, re- not going to the IRB and the not going to the IRB, they viewed the journal editors as human subjects. So they issued a finding very recently to, they found me guilty of not going to the IRB. So I want to actually talk about the IRB question a little bit here in a moment, because I think it's one of the more interesting questions uh, surrounding just kind of the fallout of this affair. But I want to turn to to Jim. Jim, what got you interested in all this? Because my understanding is you are a businessman, right? (laughs) I am um, a bit eclectic. I'm sort of an academic vagabond or something like that. So my background maybe is just best spelled out a little bit explicitly. My bachelor's degree is in physics 
I went on and did a master's degree and PhD in mathematics. I did pure mathematics, so I couldn't get a job with it outside of academia, but I left academia and I did. Wait, wait what's what's pure academics so, or pure mathematics? Pure mathematics would be theoretical mathematics as opposed to, say, math modeling or differential equations or something that you can actually apply to engineering or science. So it would be the kind of um, rarefied you know, let's just write proofs all day and prove this statement or prove that statement and f- try to find out what truths there are in mathematics uh, as we explore that um, axiomatic system. So it's it's the theoretical heady stuff that ends in QED is what it is. God, that sounds like hell to me. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like anything to me because it's all right over my head. Yeah. It's, it's a bit. Um, yeah, it's difficult. One of the things most people don't know about math is how far removed uh, your experience in mathematics is from the research frontier. It's in most fields, if you go into engineering or something, you learn the basics and very quickly, even by senior year and undergraduate, you're already touching to what is really going on out in the field. And certainly through your PhD, you would be. The coursework at the PhD level in mathematics is considered successful if it gets up to 1950. Um, and the average college graduate probably hasn't studied any mathematics. It's newer than 500 years old. So it's a, it's a, it's a difficult field from there though. I left the Academy and I did go into business. Uh, and I, I work at a small private business with my wife and then I got academically bored because it wasn't academically satisfying to do a small business. So I got into first psycho- uh, the, the philosophy of science and then into religious philosophy. And then that led me into the psychology of religion, which I studied pretty deeply, got into moral psychology and the psychology of authoritarianism. Meanwhile, these topics, of course, are going to be very relevant in what would have been kind of the culture war raging in the early 2010s. And I got involved and kept seeing people called racist, sexist, and all of these things for what seemed to be preposterous reasons. And so I got curious where that was coming from, as did both Helen and Peter. And we traced it into this literature uh, that comes out of what you might call the theoretical humanities or grievance studies more specifically. And so we started looking at theory very closely at that point and turned our attention away from, say, religion or politics and started looking at the uh, ideology that was infecting certain sectors of the academy pretty badly. Um, so you say you say certain sectors. Yeah. Do you still have a connection to physics and mathematics? Because it seems as though those hard sciences have been kind of immune from the culture war battles, from some of the ideology or the po- politization that's happening elsewhere. If you look at the Nicholas Christakis and Erica Christakis affair at Yale, the letters in support of them came mostly from STEM fields, whereas the letters in opposition from, to them came mostly from the humanities. Or do we see that the hard sciences are also kind of being, for lack of a better word, infected by the culture wars? Both. Um, so the sciences themselves and mathematics, qua mathematics, are fairly well immune. The, the um, Epistemological methods are are pretty rigorous. The expectations haven't wavered much. I can tell you mathematicians, I don't know about physicists at the research level, but I think it's true for them too. But mathematicians pay very little attention to what's going on outside of the mathematics department. And so the fields themselves are fine. But in the words of one of our peer reviewers for one of our papers, which sought to establish a feminist remake of astronomy, 
they they said that they have had that they're very sympathetic and warm to the project because to to establish a feminist astronomy because they've had good inroads into the social sciences and biology and have wanted to make headway into the hard sciences but have not yet succeeded. So there's definitely the interest to infect them. And that said, I can tell you that the vector of infection is through uh, pedagogy. So you don't see the problem in mathematics. You see the problem in mathematics education, which is going to reprioritize how math classes are taught to include social justice, both initiatives and uh, topics, but also methods. For example, replacing uh, so maybe they would say this this algebraic technique is useful for analyzing this kind of problem that has social justice relevance. So it's important. And that's it seems OK. That's just a way to get students interested. It touches what's hot right now. So fine. But then they have the students do things like journal their feelings about that social justice topic and read the journals and have discussions during class time. And so the class becomes about the social justice conversation and, and discussion rather than about mathematics specifically. And having taught mathematics at the university level for nearly 10 years, I can tell you as a math, former mathematics instructor, one of the most difficult parts of being in that role is finishing the course material, getting through that minimum amount of, say, pre-calculus that's needed to get the students ready to do calculus. And nearly always a couple of sections fall off the radar at the end of the, at the end of the semester. And so now the idea that a section of the course itself is going to be replaced by let's talk about our journals, about the feelings we have about colonialism or something like this um, horrifies me because mathematics is hard enough to learn as it is. And it seems like it's really a, a problem to, to adjust class time and priorities there. So you can kind of see that the infection isn't in the subject itself, but it's in how that subject is going to be communicated. And then also hiring decisions for the department's research decisions, uh, whose research is more publishable or who gets to present at conferences. All of that's being put through lenses of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example. So it's doing so on the administrative level and the pedagogical level, but not on the level of the material itself. So your, your study here, didn't really dive into the hard sciences. You're looking at different areas of study. What were those areas of study? What are these areas that you call grievance studies? So the the short answer is most of which most of that which was called is also called cultural studies, but that takes on a uh, ideological bent that that focuses on social grievances. Um, so fields that are highly infected by this approach which is a kind of a critical constructivist approach would be gender studies, uh, critical race studies or, or ethnic studies, uh, queer, queer theory, um, sexuality studies, disability studies, fat studies, lots of these things that media studies, things that end in studies that are coming out of what is known as the theoretical humanities. So a humanities based approach that's focused on applying theory to understand problems and phenomena in theory here is a proper noun. It's not a, it's not the common parlance. It's the, the method of analyzing usually through close reading and, and other techniques like that, how language is being used or representation or images or texts are being constructed in order to construct knowledge and therefore create and uh, prop up systems of power. So it's a blatantly political project. 
Yeah, and Hel- and Helen, you're writing a book about these studies, correct? Yes, I'm I'm writing that with Jim. And um, yeah, I've, I've been looking particularly at the theories because there has been some confusion over what we mean by grievance studies, even though we've tried to set this out quite clearly, because sometimes people have thought we've meant any kind of um, study into gender, racial or sexuality um, issues or equality. And that's that's not what we're looking at. That can be done rigorously. And, and in some places it is. The kind of theory that we're looking at is... It's, it's sort of derived from the postmodern conception of the world as constructed in language in systems of power and knowledge being a construct of that power. So it's a very specific way of looking at society and at justice issues, and it will draw on the same um, sort of theorists that, that have um, followed on from the postmodernists like Foucault and Derrida. And it, it's really sort of presenting this consistent... Um, conception of, of the world. The uh, So I, I'm sure so many of you know Brendan O'Neill. He's over in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. When I talk to him about uh, some of these areas of studies, and, and often it was in the context of Jordan Peterson, he would often criticize the critics of these studies who would call it like neo-Marxism. I think Jordan Peterson calls it that often. And Brendan would always like, no, this isn't Marxism because they're not fundamentally concerned with class. But is there, you know, to the extent that it, these studies are concerned with power, is there a little bit of Marxist f- philosophy ingrained in it? No, postmodernism and the theories that have come from it are best understood as a reaction against Marxism. So we've got the, the Marxist idea, which is, is still around, um, generally known as the materialists, and they are in um, opposition to the postmodernists. So the Marxist idea of power was that it was um, deliberately um, sort of p- imposed by powerful groups on the proletariat. So that, that was a sort of pressing down. Whereas when the postmodernists came along, they said that, no, that isn't how power works. Power is found in discourses, in ways of talking about things. Some of them get legitimized and then they spread through society. So power works through everyone like a kind of grid. So we've still got, um, in both cases, we have um, concepts of power and we have um, sort of oppressed and oppressor groups. But if you try to understand postmodernism as um, a sort of expansion of Marxism, you're going to miss the, the the epistemological differences. You're going to miss how knowledge is understood. The Marxists accepted that an objective knowledge existed. They, I don't think they got it right, but they did accept that it existed, whereas the postmodernists have pushed back at the Marxists for having this objective conception of the world and at Christianity and at science. So Peter, I want to pivot to you now. With an understanding of what postmodernism is, what grievance studies is, what is the problem with these areas of study that you all sought to point out in pursuing this project? I'm going to turn that one back to Helen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, um, in the... um, what we were, were specifically looking at in the papers we wrote was we were uh, sort of unevidenced truth claims. So we were looking, we were sort of mirroring papers that started with the conclusion. So they were going to look, say, at how rape culture manifested in some uh, situation, and then they would twist whatever they saw into proving that it did. So we came from different angles to this. We sometimes got some... Um, 
truly terrible papers and just took their ideas a bit further, or we thought of something really terrible and then made the theory fit it. But essentially, we wanted it, we wanted to make claims that weren't warranted. And we wanted to sort of target um, certain groups, white people, men, as inherently bad and finding a way to find that whatever they did was bad. So I want to go back to 2017, because that's when this project started, correct? That is correct. And it started with Jim and Peter publishing a paper called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct in Cogent Social Sciences. That's correct. Now, this wasn't a peer-reviewed journal, correct? It was a peer-reviewed journal, and we published that. We basically argued that penises were responsible. They should, they're best understood as social constructs because it was playing on the idea that these folks have that everything is a social construct, and they're responsible for a whole bunch of ills, including climate change. And we snuck in some vulgarities and some crude juvenile jokes, and people went crazy. Um I was going to ask if I can swear on your podcast, but let's just say- You can swear as much as you want. (laughs) They went fucking crazy. They went berserk. And uh, among the things that they did is they said, this doesn't prove anything. And if you wanted to actually prove it, you need to do this, X, Y, Z, one, two, three. And so then I called Jim and I said, Dude, this is awesome. They have given us a roadmap to do exactly what. To, so, so if we wanted to do this again on a grander scale, they've taught us what the conditions are for success. So I was incredibly grateful for that. Now, Jim, when you first started this project, the broader project, not the conceptual penis project, and you started submitting papers, it's my understanding that a lot of what you submitted got rejected, correct? Yeah. So, um, that was why people went apoplectic, at least in part, about the conceptual penis is because you asked if the, the journal was peer reviewed. And it's quite plain that it's very cursorily peer reviewed. And I'm not supposed to call the journal predatory as a technicality. So uh, the journal's quality was sus- extremely suspect and did limit the, the kinds of conclusions we could draw. So the f- initial conception that Peter and I started with was to replicate that kind of paper, which was absolutely not only poorly researched, but not researched and just filled with jokes and crude claims and and non sequiturs and jargon and see if the journals would accept genuine, what you might call genuine hoaxes. And what we found out was that they will not. Um, It turns out that, that whatever was going on in what we later termed grievance studies is more sophisticated than whatever it was that Alan Sokol was targeting with the so-called fashionable nonsense that he exposed in his very famous 1995 uh, expose of, of a postmodern cultural commentary journal called Social Text. So we learned within a few months, we started in August of 2017, in fact, and by Thanksgiving, so the end of November, we had learned that these journals will not fall for this kind of trick. And we need to understand the material that we're trying to replicate better and genuinely learn some of this and see how they think, see what they do, see what their theories are and how they use them and construct actual but bogus scholarship, as Helen described, where we were trying to start with a conclusion and work backwards to it, or we would make unevidenced uh, claims and just try to problematize certain identities, white men, for example, uh, to see 
what it would take to start getting papers in, seeing that we had learned the hard way that we were wrong with the conceptual penis assumption that you can actually hoax these in the same manner that Alan Sokol had done 20 and, years and ago. And I'll add one thing to that. The, the other thing that wasn't mentioned so far is that the methods we used in many of the papers were absolutely broken. So even if the conclusion was somehow morally fashionable, the data set couldn't, couldn't get you there. Right. They're illogically, uh, the, the logic very rarely worked in the paper. It's one of those things where if you squint, you can kind of see it. And, but if you look at the details, it's, it's always some kind of a non sequitur that jumps from, let's, for example, look at the one paper that got the most attention would have been our paper about the dog park. And the claim was that, that rape culture is so pervasive that it can, it manifests in dogs and can be witnessed and attested to by the way that human beings react to seeing dogs humping each other at the dog park. And we analyzed this in the most foolish ways. We, we made just a- absolutely crazy, impossible, in fact, mathematically almost impossible, physically impossible data, and then analyzed it through a lens of black feminist criminology, which doesn't make any sense at all, and then concluded that dog parks are something we call rape condoning spaces, just like nightclubs. So there's your non sequitur. <laughs> so now nightclubs are, are rape condoning spaces. And the result is that we need to, to train men the way that we train dogs because dog training works on dogs. So man training would work in a similar fashion. So the there are several points of just catastrophic brokenness in that paper, which not only was accepted in the leading journal of its subdiscipline, which is feminist geography, it was given an award for exemplary scholarship. And I believe a peer reviewer called it incredibly innovative, rich in analysis, and extremely well-written and organized, right? Correct. And it was literally none of those things <laughs> by design. <laughs> Well, th- this is actually pretty interesting to me. This is one of the more interesting things because people often refer to your your study here as the publication of fake papers. And to a certain extent, they are fake. They're, f- they're published under fake names with fake data. But the arguments you're presenting, at least in some cases, are real arguments that can be found within theory, correct? Because as you were saying, the stuff you were publishing before, the gibberish, for lack of a better word, which is kind of what Alan Sokol did, if I'm not mistaken, in his study, uh, that stuff didn't get accepted. You needed to wrap theory around fake data and fake yeah, names. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly what it was. The reason our papers were accepted is because they are indistinguishable from papers that are already there, that have already been published and that are, are quite influential. So we have taken ideas from other papers that are out there. So for example, with the um, the dog park paper, what we were sort of drawing on was this kind of implicit association bias test, which is very popular now, even though it's been largely discredited, and finding a way to include that. And we're looking at um, all kinds of of different theory that's out there. You've got to tick certain boxes. So you've got to um, identify everybody, put your own identity in a position and uh, position yourself in the scholarship. You have to problematize yourself. You have to go through so many hoops in order to get this absolutely sort of orthodox cultural constructivism. Everything is um, a product of of speech, of language. There can't be anything innate in humans. And just tick all these boxes until 
until you've you've got what they want. And and we kind of cracked the code slowly because it's really difficult to, even when you know a lot of the theories, it's very difficult to navigate your way through all the potential um, landmines. So, for example, when we wrote the paper about why straight men uh, like to look at semi-clad women, we didn't successfully at first negotiate the um, potential accusation of objectification so we had to go back and problematize that further before that paper would get accepted. Curious question here is Alan Sokol's The Sokol Affair didn't involve the peer-reviewed journal, correct? It did not. Social Text just had a editorial board as far as I understand. So this is this is a, a way bigger hoax in, in that sense. Have you heard from Alan Sokol about your study? Yes, quite quite frequent. I'm in, in contact with Alan fairly regularly. Uh, one thing I think that's important to notice about uh, the difference between Alan Sockle's hoax and ours was that what he was addressing was the original um, postmodern ideas, which really were deliberately obscure, um, deliberately illogical. So he was reproducing something perfect within that um, sort of theory at the time. We're coming 20 odd years later when we're looking at the evolution of these ideas into things like critical race theory, intersectional feminism. And this has got a lot more solid concepts, which are really, um, abhorrent, but which you can, which have an internal consistency. You can make arguments, um, using them. And that's, that's what we did. So it's, it's a different kind of project. And Peter, if you're at liberty to say, what what is Sokol thought of what you all did? Did, did he have any criticism? Was it mostly support? He, he has been incredibly supportive. In fact, he was one of the folks who wrote me a, a very long letter in my defense when the university brought me up on charges. Well, let's, let's actually, since uh, you just brought it up, let's talk about that. What is the university's argument? Right, let's talk about that as little as possible, but okay. Um, <laughs> well, to, to, to the extent you can talk about it. Well, no, I mean, I can talk about it. I just find it to be not as interesting as the fact that there are serious problems in these fields and people need to understand what those problems are and what the, the in, how, how that, those problems have impacted Basically everything in society. Um, so the university. So what was your question again? What did the university charge me with? Yeah. Well. So what was the university's concern here that that launched the investigation and then ultimately found you responsible or in violation of the the review board? I think to be very and, and Jim tells me my my new thing should be radical honesty. So I think in 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 the spirit of Jim's prompting, I think that that it really was. Uh, a small number of absolutely livid, outraged people who brought pressure internally on the university in which everybody is already in this orbit of critical race theory and trigger warnings and safe spaces and microaggressions. And in other words, everybody is already in this pond. And so uh, they found a, a, an eager audience to, instead of taking a sincere look and asking themselves, how could these papers have gotten published? What they did was, and the, the, the only reason I know this is because Portland State University is a public university and we use a .edu email address. And then the law in Oregon is that anybody can request emails and People have been requesting my emails for quite some time, but a reporter, an ambitious reporter, also requested the NB, the uh, emails of folks on the committee, and I learned some rather remarkable things. 
But I think it was initially prompted by, or at least in my first meeting, I was told this and, and, and I was lied to, but that that uh, I was told that it was it came from external to the university, but the internal emails that were revealed show that it came, it came internal to the university. I don't. Sorry, we even saw that on Twitter, didn't we? We saw some academics saying, "Do you think we can get him on IRB? Uh, let's get together. Let's write in." Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and so I think that the I think from their perspective, they had to do something to me. They had to. They or else you would have a bunch of frothing at the mouth radical leftist ideologues who occupy positions of power within the academy, within the academic structure, they were demanding a, p- a pound of flesh. And again, instead of saying, well, let's take a look at this and let's, let's really be, let's really be honest and take a look at our, our is the epistemology that we use rigorous and does it justify the conclusions that we come to? So that's one question, and I think the fundamental, of course, and perhaps most interesting question resulting from your hoax. But for those of us who have been kind of following IRBs for the past decade, there's been a lot of criticism of these review boards. Yeah, uh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, just real sorry to interrupt you there. So Jeff Flyer from Harvard has emailed me, and I've been in contact with him. And people have thought about it as IRB overreach. In fact, just today, a piece on Quillette came out about... It's gone from protecting people like in Tuskegee to protecting ideas. And I would argue that what we did was equivalent to pen testing, you know, if you, if you pay to try to penetrate a system. And Sokol, going back to your earlier question, wrote a letter to the IRB or to Mark McLean saying that what should happen instead of me being investigated is that the journal editor should be responsible for providing a defense of why they publish these papers. But it many people have said that this is a, a fantastic example of IRB overreach. Yeah, and there have been calls for IRB reform. So for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with IRBs, uh, it, they kind of sprung out of a law passed in Congress in 1974 as a result of the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study in which hundreds of black men were tested positive for syphilis and went without treatment while the government knew for something like 40 years. And this was all, of course, without their consent. So the federal government passed a law that said you need to use these IRBs, uh, these review boards to review studies that might implicate human subjects. Now there's a concern that the institution uh, that these IRBs has become has gone too far. So for example, we at FIRE have published some uh, just survey studies on campus free speech, academic freedom, and due process attitudes. And we need to run our studies, their simple polling, by an IRB. Exactly. So, so you know, and, and, and I there's think, really no concern for a human subject in yeah, those cases. I, I think it's really worth noting, again, and the only reason I know this is because of those emails that were um, – that, that the reporter got – among the people who were upset at this, one of my colleagues demanded to know if we had IRB approval. And in her letter, I don't remember the exact wording, said something like, IRB approval should never have been given for this. So think about that. You create a system that is impenetrable. There'd be, If that were the case, there'd be literally no way to test that. So IRBs then act as a kind of prophylactic toward any form of 
penetration testing. So yeah, and this is interesting to me from a free inquiry standpoint, the fact that you have these concerns about this area of study. And it's one way, of course, to just criticize it with a scholarly paper of your own. It's another thing to actually test them. And what you're saying is you would have never been able to test them had you have to go through the IRB. Well, Because they would have never been proved. Yeah, I can't say definitively, but I can certainly say that IRBs are just like anything else. They're made up of people and those people swim in ideological ponds. I mean, it would be interesting in retrospect to see if someone – I mean, even today, if someone were to submit that to, to do a kind of study like we did to see what the effects would be. I mean, you've really gone out of your – just think about that for a second. Let, let this detonate. You have created – you have institutionalized a mechanism in the university system to prevent ideas from becoming – from being systematically examined. Now – you are not allowed to do any more research as a result of this finding that you violated an institutional review board, correct? That That's correct. But since my, my papers have been getting rejected anyway, I, I think my I'm just going to write books from now on. I'm not going to do research anymore anyway. Let's talk a little bit more about the peer review um, process, move away from the institutional review boards. I heard somewhere that as your papers went through the peer review process, they got more radical rather than less. Okay, so almost to a rule, that is true. Uh, I want to be very fair to begin with that frequently we would have a rogue reviewer who made our lives very difficult by doing the right thing. Uh, so we had this very odd happiness that this occurred and from kind of the, the bigger picture uh, perspective and a frustration that's almost impossible to discuss Uh from the perspective within what we were trying to accomplish. But for example, we would have a reviewer who would say, wow, you've used a lot of statistical language like this correlates with that, but you've done no statistical analysis. This is all qualitative analysis and you can't confuse those two things. So occasionally we would have that kind of review. We would have people point out that as you would expect in peer review, you haven't cited these relevant sources. You haven't dived deeply enough into the literature. You haven't made your argument tight enough this needs more development. So there were some of the regular stuff you should expect from peer review. And then almost to a rule, every single paper was given advice to make it more politically radical. It was not sufficient, for example, that we argued in one of our papers that, that as an educational opportunity, white male students should be asked to sit in the back in the floor wearing light chains to experience reparations during their college classes and not be allowed to speak or have their emails answered. And we said that if in the paper that if we thought there's no way they're going to accept that such an extreme idea. And they said, so we said that the to do that, you then have to engage with critically compassionate intellectualism to, to be compassionate to those students that you're putting out. And then the response that we got was no, you do not need to give them compassion because that recenters their needs, which are already privileged. You need to instead engage them with what's called the pedagogy of discomfort. You need to find ways to make them uncomfortable like that and have them sit with their discomfort so that they'll learn the lesson properly of social justice. So in many cases, we were asked to be more radical. The most famous of these is people who would be familiar with the project would know. Uh, and, and in the video we released, we were laughing about it at one point. Um is that the reviewers for the dog humping or dog park paper asked us to 
go into great detail to discuss how we protected the feelings of the dogs while we were inspecting their genitals and how we respected them. Uh, much concern for that kind of, of thing. So there was some of the trappings of what you would expect from peer review. And then there were just these constant pushes to go a little bit further with the political the agenda. So for example, we wrote a paper from the perspective of a white woman from first person perspective, a so-called autoethnography, where she discovered critical race theory and discovered her own complicity in racism. And we were accused of not forwarding black scholars sufficiently in positioning ourselves as a good white. Um, and that those things would have to be attended to. We wrote a paper where we rewrote a chapter of Mein Kampf uh, about which, in which we turned uh, what Hitler was calling for, hit, it, it, the Nazi party he was calling our movement. We started by replacing our movement with intersectional feminism and then just figured out how to theorize around that and get it get the language right to get it accepted. And so we used the idea that you would approach that through allyship would be the necessary thing and the sacrifices that you'd have to make to, to be a good ally were in parallel to the sacrifices that um, Hitler was calling for people to become Nazis. And so they told us we had to problematize allyship because when somebody claims allyship, they gave a certain immunity from accusations of racism or sexism. And meanwhile, they take up a position where they feel qualified to speak on behalf of people that they're allies for. So a white person who's a black ally might try to speak to the black experience, which is problematic. So we then had to problematize allyship and then reframe the paper in terms of solidarity, some other concept and said, so this was a kind of, the way I, I, I phrased it in the past is that it was very clear that there was a political wind blowing in the peer review system there. And that wind blows consistently in one direction, and it is a gale. I want to address some of the criticisms you've received. Before you before you do that, can, can I add to that, please? Yeah, of course, Peter. So I think it's worth noting at this point that Jim, as he said, has a PhD in mathematics. Helen has a master's degree in what? Uh, literature. Literature. I have a doctorate in education with a master's in philosophy. We had no prior experience to this when we started. I had never published a, a paper in a feminine. I don't think any of us had. We had none of us had, and we wrote a quarter of a million words in ten months. In addition, just parenthetically, to a seventy-seven thousand word book, "How to Have Impossible Conversations," which is coming out September nineteenth. So we wrote twenty papers. And became, even if you, you remove the whole concept of fabricated data, that should not have been possible. What does it tell you about a discipline in which the standards are so lax that people with zero expertise can then become published and have pa a paper honored? It, it, is, it should be deeply, deeply concerning to anyone who cares about the academy. But some of your critics say that you didn't have a control group for this. So they their suggestion being that this might infect other areas of studies too, but you don't know because hoax haven't been tried on them, or maybe they have and we just don't know it. What's when your response wife, to that? When, when my wife heard that, she started cracking up laughing, but I don't want to know. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the this is this is kind of a, a red herring because we were looking very very explicitly at theory uh, which derived from postmodern ideas. The idea of having a control group doesn't work. We couldn't send our papers to any journals apart from those which accepted this kind of theory. So we 
um, th- those those fields were quite far apart. There was um, one in geography, there was one in social work, there was one in philosophy. So we sort of covered quite a lot of grounds with this. Another alternative would be that we could see if we could get um, another kind of problem in different um different kinds of journals perhaps if there was a problem in maths or something we could we could see if we could find that but this wouldn't be working effectively as a control group because it would be showing a different kind of problem to the one that we were showing i mean the way i've often put it is you don't really need to prove that your neighbor's house doesn't have rats before you can point out that your own does and then you need to do something about that what about the argument proffered by some that peer review is, isn't designed to remove fraud or absurd ideas and yes, that it, replication, I guess, would solve this problem, would weed no, this that, out eventually? Well, it, well, it hasn't because um, a lot of the papers that we drew on were published in the 90s and they're still there. Um, people are still, they didn't get in by mistake. How but, do you have replication on a philosophical argument? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's again, it's a red herring. Um, the... The, the idea that, that peer review isn't expecting fraud is certainly one, but it, it's certainly a point in that there is a, a, an assumption of good faith there. But again, I would think that it's incumbent on anybody who wants to be able to trust the peer review system as a, as a knowledge legitimizing process to believe that the expert reviewers can tell the difference between a completely broken argument that flatters their their political preconceptions and something that was done rigorously in the field. The problem is, is that what we did was rigorous within critical constructivist or grievance studies methodologies. And that means that the, the, the problem isn't with the peer review system. I mean, I'm sure I'm whatever ills the peer review system has, I'm sure they apply in many different fields. They apply in the grievance studies fields and journals at some statistical rate that may have some variance across from field to field, but that's not what we were interested in. We were interested in showing that the disciplines themselves have adopted a methodology that which they consider to be valid scholarship is something that no one should be able to put their trust in. Mm. And so that's a very different kind of claim. Yeah. I mean, it shouldn't matter um, that the, the, Paper should either be good or it isn't. It shouldn't matter whether or not we believe um, in in what we're saying. I mean, if it was in a different field, if it was biology, if somebody wrote a an accurate um, paper drawing on evolution and they didn't actually believe in evolution, the work would still either be sound or it wouldn't. So our paper, particularly the one we um, got accepted by Hypatia, the philosophy journal, it draws very strongly on all the ideas that are already out there. It is within that system a perfectly sound paper. They called it an excellent addition to feminist philosophy because in that by that criteria it was. It's now been retracted because we don't believe in that criteria. But all of the papers that we drew on to make those arguments were sincere and they're still there. To me, that's a giant scandal in itself. And that's where Alan Sokol was right to ask... um, rhetorically in the in the letter he sent on behalf of Peter that for the for the editors of these journals to defend why they published the paper and in fact of course any of the papers that we had that relied on fabricated and crazy data should have been retracted and we ourselves had planned to call for those had that not happened immediately 
But the papers that relied on philosophical argument only... Like fat bodybuilding. Such as fat bodybuilding, such as uh, the paper that we wrote for Hypatia that was about the use of humor being only justifiable when it works for social justice and never justifiable when it works against it. Papers like that are in a different category. And I think that there is a genuine call for the editors of those journals at the very least to defend why they thought those papers were legitimate and perhaps to have them stand because they're arguments within their system. Uh, as for the ones with f- false data, they should have been retracted. Absolutely. There's no call to contaminate the the scientific record with, with bogus data. That's absolutely not what we were intending to do. And we we're always going to to admit that those papers were false. And if it came to it, make sure they got retracted. In fact, we had to for the project to succeed. Exactly. So there, there is some call to defend why those things were considered defensible, but certainly in the cases where they were just philosophical arguments, it's a, it's a real question. Why didn't you need to publish? I mean, did you send the raw data over to them when you submitted these papers? Oh, of course not. In the dog what park raw paper. data? Yeah, what the raw data? data. Well, the did they not request it? I mean, I, I think that they would. See, I was afraid of that in the first draft of the dog park paper. It did not survive to the final draft because of the word count requirements. But in the very first draft that was what was submitted, which led to it being resubmitted and eventually accepted, um, I had been so afraid that they were going to request this literally borderline impossible to gather data <laughs> that I I wrote a sentence in there in our methods section that at the end, we shredded all of our data and put it in a recycle bin so that it wouldn't possibly be requested because we don't have it. And they and that didn't raise any red that didn't raise any red flags apparently <laughs> not and another paper we had that that very likely would have been accepted had we had more time to complete uh, the project before we got called out um, we had used a lot of data and the point of that paper was that we had a lot of quantitative data that showed no result and then we were going to argue that the qualitative data we gathered alongside it proved that there was a result anyway and so. Um, when we submitted that, the feedback we got from the peer reviewers was to remove the quantitative data altogether and just rely on narrative. So you had you submitted 20 papers in total, seven of which were accepted, four of which were already published. Seven of those 20 papers were still in play in addition to the seven that had already been accepted. And of those papers that used data, not one of them asked for any of the data to support your claims? Absolutely none of them did. Even the one where the... We made the mistake in the paper that was referring to the, as Helen phrased it, scantily clad women. Um, we, we, we were questioned by making the mistake. I said that in that paper that we had massive amounts of, of recorded uh, spoken material that was our data set. And I had said that we had partially transcribed it, which is apparently a huge no-no in, in, in data analysis of that type. And we had no idea at the time. So that raised the eyebrows that we weren't trustworthy with how we treated our data. So they wanted us to explain our data analysis and gathering method in much more detail, but they did not ask to see the data, which would have been fatal because it claimed to have been drawn from uh, audio recording of over 10,000 minutes of conversations held at restaurants among seven to 10 participants at a time. Uh, So no, they never, even in the case where they were very suspicious of the data for probably a fairly good reason, they did not request to see it. And the the study that you are referencing, 
There is an ethnography of restaurant masculinity, themes of objectification, sexual conquest, male control, and masculine toughness in a sexually objectifying restaurant. Correct. And the point of that paper, because this isn't widely missed, it was accepted by a journal called Sex Roles, uh, which is interdisciplinary and fairly significant. It's listed, I believe, or was at the time as the, the number one journal within gender studies in, uh, according to Google Scholar. And the point of that paper was that we were using blatantly cherry-picked data. We had started with the ambition to show that men in such spaces, sexually objectifying environments, they get called, are boorish, and it's the only way they behave. And so then we presented that we had recorded 10,000 minutes of conversation, and miraculously, the only real interesting parts were the parts where men said uh, sexually objectifying and rude things. Uh, or, or <laughs> discussing things just to see if we could get the joke in there. So um, the point of that was, will they detect blatantly cherry-picked data that services a pre-existing theoretical conclusion? And not only were they unable to, they revealed, and this wasn't in any of the published material, but uh, in the, the marked-up version of the paper they sent back to me, the editor had commented and put, you know, leave a comment in your Microsoft Word document, had commented about how this flattered their biases. She said, I've never been to one of these places and I always suspected they're bad, but I had no idea they were this bad. And it's almost certain proof that the um, the problem, the reason the paper was able to succeed is because it flattered the biases of the people reading it. It, it told them what they wanted to believe about what it's like to visit a restaurant that features uh, half-dressed women as a uh, marketing gimmick. And the peer review process, correct me if I'm wrong, was it blind in this case or in most yes. cases? Uh, there was one paper we submitted to a very odd journal called Qualitative Inquiry, um, which is very odd. People should go look at this journal. <laughs> it is very odd and it has a bizarrely high impact factor for how odd it is. Uh, they don't use blind peer review. That paper that we submitted there was desk rejected or maybe rejected by open review, but all the others used, used blind review with at least two reviewers and sometimes up to four. So Helen, has there been any introspection within these areas of study since your project uh, was announced or has it mostly been taken to the barricades and you know, fighting every tooth and nail to reject what you did? There's been sort of quite a range of responses and they're, they're quite contradictory. So some people have defended our papers and said that they were uh, good, solid scholarship, even though we weren't sincere about them. And um, other people have, um, you know, tried to, to pick holes and, and said that um, we're we're motivated by uh, sexism and racism and, and homophobia and um, and we shouldn't be taken seriously anyway. But these people are very much within... The, these uh, sort of disciplines. I'm more encouraged by people in surrounding areas of um, sociology and um, and all sorts of other social sciences and psychology who have been distancing themselves from this scholarship. They've been, um, even if they've still been really, really angry with us, uh, and that's particularly seems to be particularly strong among um, philosophers of science and um, and sociologists who have said, nevertheless. This is just some sort of mad fringe and we don't do that. So I see that as a plus. I see people distancing themselves and seeing this kind of scholarship as embarrassing as a step in the right direction. 
I'll point out that from within the disciplines themselves, having a cursory look at the journals and what they've been publishing, the same journals that accepted our papers, for example, that um, the the approach seems to have mostly been to put their heads down and pretend it didn't happen. Mm. Or to lash out, for example, as was the case with with Peter and bring him up on these institutional review board charges. Right. Yeah. But I think, I think Jim's right. The overall um, response is nothing. They just want to try and carry on as usual and, and let it die down. Well, what was the ho- the response you were hoping for? So these, these areas of study are wrapped up in the culture wars often, and you often see people calling for these professors within these studies to be fired or for their departments to be disbanded. Is that your hope as well? Can, can no. I? No, no, it is not. But can I take one step back before we talk about what our hope was and say, I think a, a question could be, did you think you could do it? That's a good question. Yeah. So did you? Uh, here's the honest answer. So we had a great deal of conversations about this very early on in, in the summer and early fall of 2017. And later we'll be able to produce receipts of this because they're on film uh, where Peter was musing that he thought that perhaps we would be able to get two to three in mid-tier journals, nothing in a high-tier journal, and that would be quite uh, amazing. And that was what he thought was likely to be possible given a year of practice. And I was adamant that we would get zero, embarrass ourselves totally, and have to admit it because it was part of the deal that we had arranged, not only for ourselves – that we would come clean in the end, even if we, we got zero papers. But we also had a filmmaker that got involved to wanted to document what we do. And, and he required that he be able to tell the full Mike, truth. Mike Nina. Mike Nina. Mike Nina. You can go to YouTube and see those videos. So, yeah, he required absolute transparency with that regard. So he thought we were on a kamikaze mission for our careers. Yeah. I thought we would get zero um, Helen's not much of a prognosticator and Pete thought we might get two or three, uh, a credible write-up of the, the project coming out of the far side of it based on what the peer reviewers had said and whether they went to, uh, revise and resubmit status contended that just out of the 20, we probably could be confident in saying 11 of them would have succeeded in the end, uh, had we not been called out. Yeah. You'd been called and, out by, uh, what was it? The, the Twitter account. Real peer it's, review. That's where it started. That's where our, the stress, I aged like a president after that. <laughs> because this is a Twitter account that just sorts through various journals to find what it sees as ridiculous arguments published yeah, in there's, journals. There's a never ending supply of those. And Jim had warned me repeatedly that this paper is just so over the top. The dog, the dog paper. paper. Yeah, and that's the one that just, peer review found? Real peer yeah. review? Yeah. Well, that was the one that it was the second one they found, actually. Yeah, and once they they found that, they started tweeting out, quote quote tweeting screenshots of it. It went crazy, and it went. The National Review picked it up. All these people picked it up, uh, and, the, and, then, and the Wall Street Journal was the big one, right? Yeah, yeah. Once the Wall Street Journal got involved, and they doing due diligence as as journalists should, had contacted the journal the academic journal, Gender, Place, and Culture, to see if they had verified our identity because. 
that's what they were ultimately interested in is that nobody could place the fo- the imaginary named author. The, the fabricated author didn't seem to exist. So they wanted to find out what was going on behind that. So they contacted the journal. So now the journal was requesting that we prove our identity with by sending in a picture of our photo ID. And we're not going to forge identity, you know, to, to continue the project. And then the Wall Street Journal was asking questions. So we decided that the only responsible thing to do at that time was to come clean, yeah. tell the world what we had done and not try to, to drag and, out. And and the shame is it's hard to tell you at how, how much better we had gotten at this in only a few months. And so the other papers that were uh, under review, they were really... We had high hopes. We had very high hopes for those. And we now that we knew what we were doing, I was very confident that those would get in, or at least a certain chunk of those. But can, can I address the, the question of what we wanted to achieve with this? Yes, of course. Because I, I think, yeah, obviously people have accused us of wanting to, to shut down departments or stop certain ideas from being spoken or fire people. And, and that is, is not at all the intention. The, what's happened in Hungary is something that we, we cannot support at all. There needs to be academic freedom. People need to be able to make these kind of arguments, use these kind of theories. What we wanted to do was show how ridiculous they were, how unethical they were. We wanted to get more attention on these ideas, have people embarrassed to have their work associated with this, have the, the problems fully recognised, and for these this kind of approach to fall out of fashion, to have the scholarship done properly. And, right. and what you're referencing in, in Hungary is the situation with the universities there. The federal government in Hungary is getting involved in shutting down uh, I believe it's one of George Soros's universities there, one that was the, the departments associated with critical theory and gender studies, for example. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah, we don't endorse that. The, my my hope had been to point out that there is a crisis of trust in the scholarship that's addressing really important social, cultural and political issues like race, gender, sexuality, identity, and so on, and try to call for a... A, a new level of attention and review that recognizes the fact that, as has been demonstrated, there's a paper by Charlotta Stern in 2016, that uh, the, the tendency of these disciplines is, and I hesitate to use the word discipline, the fields, is that their, their tendency is to put on blinkers and pretend that there is no criticism of what they're doing, or even worse, to cast any criticism as part of a uh, power dynamic that works against their their ambitions. And so they've insulated themselves from the legitimate criticism that's necessary for a functional epistemology. If you want to get to knowledge, you have to be able to accept criticism. And that criticism should be able to be made by anybody who's doing it in a, in a sincere or even insincere way. You should be able to deal with that criticism and, and winnow out the truth that way. So our call had never been to fire anybody, to close down a department, to defund anything. It has been to initiate a position within the university to where the university itself starts to do what it should have been doing and properly vetting and reviewing these kinds of papers before that the, they can be used for tenuring decisions, hiring decisions, uh, application and pedagogy, application to, to administration or industry or law. And so it's really a call for reform, not a call for banning or firing or, or any kind of a draconian method. Certainly, people should be able to publish heterodox ideas, but that's the whole point that we were making. Because to be heterodox in these fields is not allowed. 
And so any criticism that came, say, Steven Pinker's famous book, The Blank Slate, just gets either ignored or problematized as as something that's a further site for the necessity of of the research they claim to be doing. And what, that's the problem. What is there anything having done this that you would have done differently in retrospect? Yes. Yes. Peter. <laughs> a couple of things, yeah. Yeah, I I uh made a mistake that I regret and will regret for the rest of my life. And if I could take back one moment, it would be this. I gave, I was talking to Jim on the phone and I gave Helen Wilson a, he said, what should we give Helen Wilson a PhD in? And I said, well, let's give her a PhD in feminist studies. Remember that? That was all right. That's right. That was the biggest mistake of my professional life, or I don't even know my professional life. That was the biggest mistake I've made. I don't even know in how long. And the reason that was a crucial error that led to the downfall of this whole thing was because there are only four, evidently, there are only four universities in the world that give PhDs in feminist studies. So all it took was someone who's mildly ambitious to call every one of them and say, do you have a, have you, has you ever graduated Helen Wilson with a PhD? But if I had just said gender studies mm-hmm. and you know, there are significantly more, I, that would have dissuaded somebody who, who wasn't utterly ambitious from doing that. And we would have brought the project to its completion. Right. I don't think we would have gotten caught. Not only would we have had more papers come out, but one of the things that we failed to do because we got caught was to make a connection between the scholarship that was coming out of these departments and how they were influencing public policy. And because we didn't have an opportunity to do that, once the project was revealed, many people would say, oh, those are just some crackpots in the academy. Who cares what a bunch of fringe academics do? So to answer your question directly, yes, I regret giving Helen Wilson a PhD in feminist studies, and I am so sorry for that decision. Helen Wilson was the was the putative author of the dog the dog humping study. And so yeah, we had to write an author bio and we chose in our ignorance the, the wrong <laughs> discipline to give her a PhD in. Wait, but how did that in, how did that result in you getting caught? Because I thought real peer review caught you or were you caught so, before that? Okay, so Real Peer Review tweeted the paper and it got somewhere between one and two orders of magnitude more attention than anything else they tweet because it was a bit nuts. And that led to it being investigated and written about by journalists. And some journalists, one of the last tweets that Real Peer Review put out about the paper was, look at the author's bio. This is the author. And so that drew attention to people who got asking questions, well, what university? Because it doesn't claim what university that PhD came from. It's very vague. And Uh so they said, well, who is this Helen Wilson? And they started digging to try to find who Helen Wilson was. And they found out, well, there are only, I think it's in North America, there are only four degree granting institutions with PhDs in feminist studies at the time. And so they called all four of them and said, is Helen Wilson somebody you graduated? Trying to just find out the backstory to this paper. Because I wasn't, as Helen Wilson, the controller of Helen Wilson's email account, I wasn't answering their requests uh, for, for information. And so um, when they went digging to find out, they called all four institutions. There's no Helen Wilson. So that's when they decided to get involved with asking the journal, the academic journal, hey, did you guys actually check to see that Helen Wilson exists? Because we can't find any record that she exists at all. And we're trying to get the backstory on this paper. And we think that there might be some foul plays. In fact, I think that what they thought was somebody 
was giving themselves a PhD who doesn't actually have one and was yeah. trying to pass off fake credentials. And I don't think anybody really suspected it, it wasn't a sincere paper until uh, we actually had to admit that. Mm-hmm. Helen, is there anything you would have done differently? Uh, I, I made a couple of errors. I, I really missed one uh, paper getting accepted because I misgendered um, a particular theorist, but I would have liked for it to go on a bit longer because I'd have... Um, I was getting more into critical race theory by this point, and I, I so many good ideas have, have come to me since then that, that we could have got in that would have, have really made a point about um, and that showed how these this really sort of paranoid worldview works. So, yeah, I'm a bit sad about that. And Jim? Um, I think that I kind of wish that we would have dedicated to learning about the field properly sooner mm. instead of at the moment of clear defeat of our initial hypothesis test? Can we send in these um, more or less meaningless, uh, jargon-laden, silly papers and get them in? Uh, I wish we would have started engaging sooner because we would have, within it was about five months worth of, of writing when we were actually learning to engage with the material. And if we would have had, say, 10 months of engaging with the material, who knows what we could have accomplished. Uh, so I wish we would have made that decision sooner. And I... I, I do. I agree with Helen that we. I wish we could have been able to branch out to deeper levels of theory uh, instead of most of our papers being about either gender or sexuality studies, which are kind of the easiest entry point because um, it's led to us not being credible uh, in our claims that critical race theory has similar problems that we can actually describe quite clearly at this point, but we weren't able to penetrate any critical race uh, specific journals. And finally, to be honest with you, the, the, even though I don't think any control papers were needed, I do wish that we would have done a paper that was as well-researched as the ones we were producing at the end, that understood theory as well as we did, and the scholarship that we were using as well as we did, but then got the ideology backwards. That, that pointed to something like that that men or uh, white people or something are underprivileged by by the way that social justice is is acting in the world or something that's completely uh, verboten in, in in their scholarship and then sent that to any number of journals but ideally a very low tier journal because if even a bottom barrel journal won't take it that tells you something. Uh, without much doubt that there is an ideological uh, bias in play. So I wish we would have included or had time to include really a paper that went in reverse mm. uh, that, that got uh, Alan Sokol actually mentioned this in his write up about the conceptual penis in which he said that we had mostly missed the mark uh, correctly said that. And he had said that he's, he was quite confident that if, the ideology had been backwards if we had written a paper about the conceptual vagina and that it causes all these problems. No way anybody would have accepted right, that. Right. And so I wish we would have had the time and the know-how because it would require a certain degree of know-how to have got into that aspect. Uh, for, in, in, for instance, instead of wasting as much time as we did trying to repurpose Mein Kampf in a second way uh, to get a, a second version of, of a rewrite of Mein Kampf published. So, Jim, I'm, I'm just curious what is your theory, lowercase t, as to what would have happened had you gotten the ideology backwards? Do you see these I, areas of study being so insular and 
uh, that they wouldn't have accepted it. They don't no, accept criticism and dissent. Not insular, afraid. I think, as a matter of fact, that we could have submitted that to cogent social sciences and they wouldn't have accepted it because they know the fire and brimstone that would have come from the rest of the community had they accepted a backwards ideology paper and published it. I mean, a, a real life example of that is Rebecca Tuval's attempt to apply um, queer theory to critical race issues and the backlash that she got uh, for that. So, and as, as well, some of the comments that we got on our papers when we accidentally didn't quite hit the right orthodoxy really makes us quite confident that that nothing that went against the grain would have been accepted. Yeah. So to elaborate, if you don't know the Tuvel incident, it's worth looking up for any of your, your, your listeners. The Tuvel incident, Rebecca Tuvel wrote an argument for transracial identity that paralleled the arguments for transgender identity pretty much precisely. And then there a huge explosion happened when, when Hypatia accepted and then retracted and then she was the paper. And then I mean, the whole editorial board of Hypatia fractured over the scandal that this caused. And the reason, as Helen pointed out, was that she applied queer theory to critical race issues. And those two are actually theorized very differently. So to have stepped outside of the orthodoxy led to her being uh, subjected to uh, vicious punishment that was extraordinarily damaging to the reputation of the journal Hypatia, which otherwise had had very high standing among most scholars. And to have gotten the ideology so backwards that it, it was that we'd written something fairly ideologically abhorrent and gotten it published anywhere, I think no one would have taken the paper because they knew the backlash would collapse their journal. You you actually had a paper accepted but not yet published with Hypatia, correct? It was, I think, called When the Joke is on You, a Feminist Perspective on How Positionality Influences Satire. Was this before or after the Tuval that, incident? That was, that was after. after the Tuval incident. I, after. If, if you have a, another minute or two, I think that's worth lingering upon because we consider that to be our flagship paper. And yet that was the paper that received almost no attention be, due to its complexity. It was it was something that I'm most proud of of the whole project. So the paper's point was to say that you can't use humor against social justice, but you you should use humor against things that are not social justice. And if, in a sense, of course, calling it when the joke's on you is a is a gigantic irony, and we were quite proud of. Explain, but unpack. It that. doesn't need to be explained. It's quite obvious uh, <laughs> who the joke's on, and so uh, that. The paper actually, and this is this is where we considered it. This isn't why it's a coup de gras, but it was why it's really profound. Actually, cited us. It cited our conceptual penis and problematized our attempt on the conceptual penis. And so we made the arguments in a sense. Not only did we cite ourselves, <laughs> but we also cited. We we also made the arguments from within theory of why what we were doing would be considered unethical from within theory. Mm. And then had it validated by their journal. And so we certainly showed that they accept the idea that they would argue that we were were, uh, unethical in our approach. And that kind of puts them in in a dilemma. If they wanted to criticize what we did and use theory to criticize what we did, they would have to cite us to do it. Yeah. And we were fairly sure that when we came and clean and people knew what we've done, what the response would be, which would be to say that we were just trying to protect our privilege as white and two thirds male um, people and, um, and actually sort of punching down on, um, 
on women and, and ethnic minorities. And so we actually wrote that argument. We, we made the argument that humour and um, mockery is never, ever acceptable when it is at social justice uh, scholarship and it should be either shut down or punished. This Richard Baldwin, a borrowed identity, is that correct? He's borrowed, yeah. Yeah, he's the only real person we had. And so that's why you see a lot of the original papers about homo hysteria. And he's an, actually a professional body, the modern Adonis, I think he's called. Modern Apollo. Modern Apollo, yes. Yeah, he's actually a professional bodybuilder. He's a friend, a longtime friend of Peter's. Uh, uh, and he let us use his, his, his name and uh, affiliation, but not his email or anything like that, to... To, to write papers. So when, when real peer review, for example, tweeted about the fat bodybuilding paper that was in his name before it tweeted about the dog paper and the fat bodybuilding paper got a lot of attention on real peer review, but it did not lead to, and it did lead to articles, but it didn't lead to the collapse of our, our, our effort because anybody who went and looked up Richard Baldwin as people did, because he got asked for interviews mm-hmm. uh, and told us uh, when anybody went and looked up Richard Baldwin, he's real. There's no question. There was no hook right. to figure out that this is a person and, and I had been fabricated. I had said from the very beginning that he is our biggest strength, that he uh, someone who's retired with an, an actual person with a PhD. And I knew right from the beginning that not having another person, not having a real person would be the death of us. But I right. didn't really know. But we also knew that we couldn't have Richard Baldwin, uh, this body professional bodybuilding retired history professor from a college in Florida go into retirement and suddenly publish possibly 20 papers <laughs> in 15 disciplines <laughs> and become the most prolific prolific uh, gender scholar in the history of this field out of nowhere without raising a couple eyebrows what was the most uh, just two more questions here what was the most prestigious journal that you got accepted into in your uh, the argument the argument there then depends on what you value is either Hypatia, which would be my contention, or uh, sex roles, uh, which is interdisciplinary and quite big. And can, it's, it's uh, impact factor certainly higher and it's ranking in most of the, the uh, journal ranking systems is higher. But of course, being interdisciplinary, it's a bit different than, you know, something like Hypatia, which is dedicated specifically to feminist philosophy and is the most highly regarded journal in that sense and is widely regarded as very good among philosophers more, more generally. Uh, so that's, that's extremely uh, prestigious. It's also the one with the most name recognition. Many academics who we talked to as we were, uh, as we've come out with the, with the project were like, okay, Hypatia, that means something. You don't sneak something into Hypatia. Mm-hmm. If it got into Hypatia, that's, this is real. This is a big deal. And that's where a lot of the scholarship that we are most worried about is, is getting published as well in, in feminist epistemology and critical race epistemology. The stuff that's really quite influential is, is largely getting published in Hypatia. Peter, do you plan to do the training in order to do human subject research in the future? Because it says if you don't do it and you do human subject research, then you're subject to be fired. Or is... Or you know, I guess a preface question, do you believe you violated the Institutional Review Board and was this an act of academic civil disobedience? Uh, it's a, so here's what I believe. I believe they fabricated a technicality. And from the people with whom I've spoken, that's also what led me to conclude that I am 
no expert in this. And I haven't said this publicly yet, but I'll say it now. So I'm taking a year off next year, an unpaid leave of absence from Portland State University. And I think that's, it's just going to be a very good thing for me to step back from that for a year. And I have quite a few ambitious projects lined up in that year. Uh, and I also want to pursue my scholarship. So I am taking a year off. And and, and your next ahead. step is is a book, right? Well, I the have next a, thing you're publishing. Right. I have a book coming out with Jim, actually, on September 17th. And I'm writing another book right now about critical pedagogy. And Helen and Jim have a book come the, – the final manuscript is due in August. And we have a film coming out in – By uh, the end of the year. By the end of the year. About the project. About the, the project. project uh, and so we have a lot of stuff going on right now. If people, if my, our listeners want to learn more about this project, what's the one thing you'd tell them to read? What's the one thing you'd tell them to watch? So the one thing to, to, to go read is our original write-up that we put out in Aereo Magazine. Uh, that was uh, Grievance Studies and the Corruption of Scholarship or something close to that. The one thing to watch is everything on Mike Nana's YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Mike Nana, N-A-Y-N-A. Yeah, he's got a playlist which um, takes you through and it is the most uh, sort of comprehensive and accessible explanation. Right. Not only does does he explain what we did and show that what we did, and it, it's also a place where material is going to keep coming out about what we've done uh, in, through his, his documentation style. He also made a three-part documentary about the meltdown that happened at Evergreen State College uh, that connects the ideas that we were revealing to them being institutionalized to a rather severe degree and the meltdown that it caused in in that kind of small uh, ecosystem that was the Evergreen State College. So that's like Netflix quality documentary stuck on YouTube, three parts, just under an hour and a half to watch all three. And it gives you a real sense of what happens when these ideas get applied in an institutional fashion and get taken up by a sufficient uh, number of people within the population to where they've lost their ability to have um, evidenced and reasoned discourse because they have to appeal to these um, moral orthodoxies and the pieties that go along with it. And they lose their ability to, to critically analyze because they'll be called a racist if they ask for evidence, for example. Uh, so it's definitely not just for the work that we've done, but also for Mike's own work that I, I highly encourage people to, to engage with as much of the stuff as he's, that he's made as possible. All right. Well, Peter, Helen, Jim, I appreciate your taking an hour and 15 minutes today to chat with me about all this. And uh, I hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. Thank, Thank you. Very Thank very you. Much. Appreciate it very much. That was Jim Lindsay, Peter Bogosian, and Helen Pluckrose, the three collaborators in the so-called Grievance Studies Affair. To learn more about their project, you can visit the show notes where I provide links to their write-up of the project and other associated materials. This conversation was hosted by me, Nico Perino, who's also produced and recorded by me, and it was edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. I also want to throw out a thank you to my colleague Pamela Presky, who helped organize this interview uh, and helped get these three collaborators together. If you liked what we did here in this episode, you can always email us feedback at so to speak at the fire.org 
or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you're new to this show, if you're old to this show, it doesn't matter. If you like what we did, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show and as a result, help get these messages of free speech, academic freedom, and free inquiry in front of new audiences. So until next time, I thank you all again for listening.